Okay, let's, uh, let's begin by praying and asking God to uh, direct our, our class this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you. We give you thanks for your great mercy and kindness to us. Thank you for giving us the word of God that we can study, that we can learn from, and learn of you. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, quiet our hearts this morning and direct our minds and our thinking to your word, and uh, may you uh, teach us from the scriptures, and may you be honored and glorified in our lives. We ask for your um, blessing on our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by reading a very brief story to you. Adoniram Judson grew up in parsonages around Boston in the 1700s. He entered Brown University, remember that, Brown University, at age 16 and graduated valedictorian of his class. While there, he became best friends with Jacob Eames. Jacob was a deist, and in practical terms, an atheist. Ridiculing Judson's faith, he challenged him with the writings of Voltaire and the French philosophers. When Adoniram returned home, he told his parents that he too had become an atheist. His mother broke into gentle sobs his father roared and threatened and pounded the furniture. Adoniram, 21 years old, migrated to New York City. But then, hearing tales from the American frontier, he saddled his horse and headed west. One evening, weary from travel, he stopped at an inn. The proprietor said, Forgive me, sir, but the only room left, well, it'll be a bit noisy. There's a young fellow next door, awfully sick. Adoniram, too tired to care, took the key. The night became a nightmare. The tramping of feet coming and going, muffled voices, painful groans, chairs scraping against the floor. Adoniram was troubled by it all. The next morning, while checking out, he asked about the young man in the next room. The proprietor said, I thought maybe you'd heard. He died, sir, toward morning. Very young, not more than your age. Went to that Brown University out east. His name was Jacob Eames. The West suddenly lost its allure for Adoniram Judson. He turned his horse toward home. Soon, he gave his life to Christ, shortly after, devoted himself to missions. On February 6, 1812, he was commissioned as America's first foreign missionary. He and his wife sailed for Burma on February 18. If you want to read the expanded version of that story, I would suggest you read To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson, an excellent book. Tells all about his work in Burma. Today I want to look at a subject 
that is of great importance to us and yet is very mysterious, a subject that is extremely challenging to our mental capacity and yet gives us great hope, gives us great encouragement and comfort in the midst of a broken world full of trials. And what we just, what that story I just read you is an indication of what we're going to talk about. Who do you think was orchestrating the events in that story? Did that just happen by chance? Just by chance, Adoniram Judson's arrives at that inn that night? No, we know better. We know who was orchestrating everything. It was the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what I want to talk about today. One source started this way in discussing the Holy Spirit. He says, we now come to a subject that is vast in view of the number of texts, that is, biblical texts. I would add, in view also of who we're talking about, the Holy Spirit, (laughs) the living God, vast subject. Do you know what this is? This is a piece of armor. Maybe in the back row you can't see it. This is a little receptacle, and it's a piece of armor that our ancestors used to use when they were mending their clothes. (laughs) I'm sure women or some people still use it, you know, when they're mending clothes. This is a thimble. If I were to ask, if, if you had never seen the Pacific Ocean, never seen a picture, Never knew anything about the Pacific Ocean. And I took this to California, dipped it in the Pacific Ocean, brought it to you, and said, here, this is a sample of the Pacific Ocean. What would you learn from that? Could you learn anything? Well, a little bit. You could, couldn't you? I mean, you'd find out that the Pacific Ocean is wet. And if you tasted it, you'd know it was salty. And if you had the right instruments and apparatus, you could also examine it a little more thoroughly and find out maybe how much of minerals and different things that are in it. But what would you know about the tides? Every day, twice, up and then down, the tides. Would you know anything about that? No. Uh, What would you know about the vastness of the Pacific Ocean? How huge it is. The depth and the, the, the tremendous pressure of the ocean, at the bottom of the ocean. The power of the ocean struck terror in the hearts of experienced sailors. You would know nothing about that. And the beauty of the ocean. Yeah, you would, you would, you would not learn about that. So this is the way I feel when I come to, to uh, discussing the Holy Spirit, <laughs> I feel that I just have a thimble full of, of uh, knowledge on it. But the scriptures are, do tell us a lot. But I feel, cons- considering who the Holy Spirit is, how little, how little I'm going to know. And maybe another uh, way to look at it is, this thimble might represent my ability to comprehend <laughs> You know, the Holy Spirit. What can I know? I just, my, with my pea brain, you know, what can I know about the Holy Spirit? Well, anyway, God has given us his word, 
And uh, this morning we want to look at what his word has to say. We want to ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? We don't know much about the spirit world. We don't live in that realm. We ourselves are spirit, but our spirits are tied to a physical body. We live in the physical realm. Jesus indicates that he understood our situation when he said this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 16, 7. I think he knew that we needed the assurance that this was a positive thing, that this was to our advantage. He says, uh, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that he go and send the Holy Spirit to us. We are so physically oriented that we would object and think that having the king here would, of course, be the best thing. I mean, after all, he did amazing things while he was here. But God had other plans, and it wasn't time yet for the king to permanently reign as king. God was going to call out a people for himself from all the nations, and Jesus was going to build his church, and this would be done through the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we see the work of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in the story that I just read to you, how he orchestrates everything in accomplishing his purpose and in accomplishing the building of Christ's church. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Jesus likened the Holy Spirit to the wind. You sense the effect of it, but you see nothing. The Spirit comes, the Spirit goes as he chooses and accomplishes his purpose. The Spirit of God is intangible, invisible, but his work is unequaled. He changes the heart of his enemies. He brings order out of chaos. He brings beauty out of devastation. He turns an evil person into a saint. He makes night people into day people. Because he is mysterious, we are prone to superstitions and wrong-headed ideas about him. And Sproul says the remedy is that we must stick with the scriptures that reveal him to us. Today I want to consider a couple of things. First of all, the personality of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit a personality, a person? Our spiritual ancestors, if not our physical ancestors, had to wrestle with this issue. Uh, the issue of the nature of God. They had to do this to deal, as Damon said a couple weeks ago in here in Sunday school, uh, because heresy was threatening the church. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, what, what if we had to face? What if, what if all we had was the scripture and uh, nobody had really uh, you know, figured it out? Than, uh, concerning the nature of God. How would we handle that? So that's what the church had to deal with back in the early days because there were different ideas that were coming out. You know, like the Holy Spirit is just an influence, just a force, 
uh, not really God, and things like that. And so the church had to, had to come to grips with this, and what they did was they turned to Scripture to see what it said, and sought to draw out from the Scriptures who God is and what his nature is. R.C. Sproul says the church had to guard, on the one hand, against tritheism, the idea of three gods, which is a form of polytheism, and on the other hand, guard against Unitarianism, which would deny the deity of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Trying to define and understand God is a monumental issue. So what they did was they looked at the scriptures and sought to understand as much as they could based on the authoritative word of God. Sproul also says this, when the Christian church confesses its faith in a triune God, it intends to convey that there is one essence or being, not three. One essence or being, not three. But that there are three distinctive subsisting personalities in the Godhead. The names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indicate personal distinctions in the Godhead, but not essential differences in God. If you stop and consider that statement, that he is one essence, one being, but three distinct personalities, you're going to be scratching your head. What does that mean? Uh, and I'm still asking that question. <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly. Uh, it's a mystery. I don't understand completely. You couldn't say that there's three gods. That'd be definitely against the scriptures. And you couldn't say the Father is God, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not God. So what are we talking about? And that's the way the church has uh, come to the conclusion that we have one being, one essence, and three personalities. Three personalities. So today we, wanna, we want to, uh, first of all, look into the personality of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit a personality? So let's look at that briefly. The Holy Spirit has the marks or characteristics of personality. He has life. Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. John 7, 38 and 39, Jesus said, He who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit. Rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 3, the Spirit of the living God. Paul speaks of the Spirit of the living God. So the Spirit of God is living and gives life. He's also intelligent. 1 Corinthians 2.11 For who among men knows the depths of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit knows the depths of God. Romans 8, 26 to 27, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He who searches the hearts, 
that is the Father, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit knows the will of God, and he intercedes according to the will of God. He has purpose, and he has will as, to, as well. Uh, in speaking of the gifts that God gives to his church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. So he has a purpose, he has a will, and he distributes the gifts to his church as he wills. And then there's the activity of the Holy Spirit. What is his activity? Acts 2.4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving utterance. So the Spirit we see there is choosing and enabling certain people to speak in a language that they don't know. He's producing this in these people. Uh, the Spirit speaks. This is not just a force or some power. He speaks. Acts 8.29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. He intercedes, as I mentioned a while ago. Romans 8.26. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. He commands. Acts 13.2. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He teaches. 1 Corinthians 2.13. Paul says, Of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit teaches. He testifies. John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness of Jesus. He also convicts, John 16, 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So he brings conviction, just like he did on Adoniram Judson that night. Uh, he began to lay it on him and to turn his heart uh, to the Savior. He's self-conscious. 1 Corinthians 2.11 For who among men knows the depths of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the spirit of God. He's self-conscious. He has emotions. Isaiah 63, 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So the, uh, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Ephesians 4, 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And I was as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, when God became incarnate among us. He was led by the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. He wept. He got angry. And he was led by the Holy Spirit. There was emotion there. It was in the Son of God, but he was being led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he has emotion. He can be grieved. The very name Holy Spirit indicates he is a personality. Holy Spirit. A spirit is not a force or an influence, but a personality. Angels are ministering spirits. Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are personalities. A spirit is a personality. The scriptures also use personal pronouns for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not an it. Acts 13, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I have called them. John 14, 16, Jesus spoke of sending another advocate, one similar to Jesus, another advocate. In verse 18 of John 14, Jesus says, I will come to you. I will come to you. He's speaking of sending the Holy Spirit, but he says, I will come to you. He comes through the agency of the Holy Spirit, by means of or through the Holy Spirit. Jesus had been their helper, their comforter, and no mere power or influence was going to take his place. This was a personality. John 15, 26 When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, verses 7 to 8. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, verses 13 to 14. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Bible uses personal pronouns in reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also is associated with the Father and the Son in a way that indicates he is a personality. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul in closing out his letter to the, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So he's associated with God the Father and God the Son. 
Next, the New Testament warns against sinning against the Holy Spirit, resisting Him, grieving Him. Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And then when Stephen was standing before the Jewish leaders and being condemned, he said this, You men, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Next, I want to um, deal with the issue of, of Christ's deity. He is a person, and he is also the living God. The case for the deity of the Holy Spirit is so strong that through history, there has not been much controversy with respect to this. R.C. Sproul says this, The Bible so clearly represents the Holy Spirit as possessing divine attributes, exercising divine authority, that since the 4th century, that would be the 300s A.D., his deity has rarely been denied by those who agree that he's a person. And Sproul also says that in the Old Testament, what is said of God is said also of his Holy Spirit. So let's look at a few things that indicate the deity of the Holy Spirit. He's referred to as God. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? And then he ends by saying, why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You have lied to God. If we look in the Old Testament, we find that the Spirit of God and God are used interchangeably. What God is said to do or say is what the Spirit is said to do or say. The Lord is speaking in Isaiah 6, 9 and says this. He said, go and tell this people. Then in Acts 28, 25, and 26, Paul quotes that passage by saying, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father saying, go to this people and say. So what the Lord in Isaiah says to Isaiah, Paul says, the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit said that. So he's referred to as God. He has the attributes of God. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we read this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through, what? The eternal spirit. What does eternal mean? I can think of what eternity is, that there's always tomorrow, you know, in the future. But when you go to the past, that 
I, I don't understand. But I believe that God has always been. <laughs> but I don't understand that because I'm bound by time and space. And that's all I know. Time and space. But God is eternal. Uh, existed before creation. You know, and that, that blows my mind. I can't quite understand all that. But it says concerning the Holy Spirit that he is eternal. He has the attributes of being God. He is also omnipresent. Listen to this, Psalm 139, verse 7. Verses 7 to 10, sorry. Where can I go from your spirit? So the psalmist is asking, where can I go from your spirit, Lord? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You are everywhere. Um, I'd like to give you an illustration at this point that relates to the omnipresence of the Spirit of God, but also to his omnipotence and uh, his, uh, just his greatness. Um, do you have any idea of the immensity of the heavens? It says here, where can I go from your spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Um, the heavens today are measured in light years, as far as extent goes. And the stars populate the heavens. Genesis 1.16 says this, So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And then he tacks on this at the end of it, and also the stars. And also the stars. I think it's rather humorous, actually. <laughs> uh, Psalm 147, verse 4, says this. Who counts the number of the stars? Speaking of the Lord, he gives names to all of them. Counts the number of the stars. Gives names to all of them. God told Abraham to count the stars if he could. And uh, scientists today tell us that if you look up in the night sky, not around here, but you have to go way out in the wilderness somewhere where you don't have light pollution, you know. Uh, and, and if you behold the heavens, it's just absolutely stunning to see the brightness of the stars. But we don't really enjoy that because of all the light we have around here. But scientists tell us that if you look up in the night sky, you can count about 3,000 stars in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, about the same amount. And God told Abraham to count the stars if he could. You know what they found out now? How many stars there are in the universe? <laughs> How many stars in the universe? Uh, they don't really know. <laughs> but according to their approximations, there are about 10 to the 25th power stars 
in the universe. Do you know what, do you know what I just said? You have no idea. And neither do I. I have no idea. 10 to the 25th power. Let me give you just a little idea of what that means. If you had a computer, well, let me tell you what 10 to the 25th power means. First of all, it's a 1 with 25 zeros after it. That's 10 to the 25th power. If you had a computer that could count 10 to the 10th power of stars per second, 10 to the 10th power is 10 billion. And this computer can count 10 billion stars per second. Do you know how long it would take to count 10 to the 25th power stars? <laughs> how long? Any idea? Get. What? A decade. Okay. Well, you're just a little off. <laughs> You're not going to believe this, because we can't really conceive of what 10 to the 25th power means. It would take 30 million years. <laughs> Seriously. That's, how we, that's why we don't understand what we're even talking about when we say 10 to the 25th power. I mean, I've, I've actually tried and worked it out myself to see if it was really so. And I actually came up with, it's just a few more years, I came up with 1,709,000,000 more. So they've rounded it off to 30 million. Uh, 30, yeah, 30 million. Uh, I, yeah, I had rounded, I had come up with 31,709,000 years. <laughs> anyway, the point is, who are we talking about? We're talking about the living God who has created every one of those stars. He knows the number, and he knows, and he's given them names. And the, the psalmist says, if I go to heaven, go up into the heavens, you are there. You are there. In Job, there's an interesting passage. It says this in Job 26, 11 to 14. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he crushed Rahab. By his breath the heavens are made beautiful. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are... And here's, here's the, 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 the unique thing about this. He says, the, he's talking about what God has created. The, the creation... And he says, behold, these are the fringes of his ways. Some translations say outskirts of his ways. These are the fringes, the outskirts of his ways. So all this massive amount of stars that is put there for our benefit so that we can understand a little bit about the greatness of God. And the more you learn, the more you see how great he is. These are just... This is just the fringes of his ways. This is nothing. You, haven't, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know? That's the idea. This is the fringe. And what this tells me is that God the Holy Spirit has absolutely every atom under his direct control. He can deal with me as if I were the only one on the earth. He knows everything about me, and he can focus his attention on me, 
and my issues and be working in my life to make me like Christ, sanctify me. He knows all about my troubles, everything. As if I was the only one on the planet. And yet he's doing that for every one of us throughout the earth. At the same, at the same time. Yeah, that's what that tells me. Jesus said, I will come to you. And lo, I am with you always. I take that to mean that where the Spirit of God is, there is our Savior as well. In John 14, 16, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, another advocate, that he may be with you forever. And it is through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is with us at all times. Never apart from us. Jesus said that I'm going to send the, the advocate and he will be with you forever. He's always with us. The Holy Spirit is also omniscient. 1 Corinthians 2.10 The Spirit search, searches all things, even the depths of God. He's omnipotent, Luke 1.35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This was the Holy Spirit's doing. The Holy Spirit anointed individuals in the Old Testament like prophets, judges, kings, with power to accomplish special things. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, Acts 10.38. The Holy Spirit also does what only God can do. First of all, providence. Psalm 104, verses 24 to 30. How numerous are your works, O Yahweh. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give them. They gather it up. You take away their spirit. They breathe their last. You send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the ground. The Holy Spirit is involved in providentially caring for us and God's creation in this universe. He's actively involved in providence. And uh, we saw that in the story that I read to you right at the beginning about Adoniram. He's also involved in regeneration. John 3, 7 to 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. He regenerates our heart. Only God can do that. He makes us into a new creation in Christ Jesus. Regeneration. And also resurrection. Romans 8.11 says this. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit is involved in resurrecting. We will rise from the dead by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And then, in the ordinance of baptism, or as Matthew puts it in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And concerning this, John Calvin said this, What is Christ's meaning here if not that we are to believe with one faith in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? But is this anything else than to declare that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one God? I want to um, just talk a little bit about some of the ramifications of the fact that the Holy Spirit is a personality and that he is God and how does this relate to us and impact us. So I'm going to just give you a few few things that have come to my mind that relate to this. First of all, these verses give us some insight into the character or essence of our God, who he is and what he is like. What a massive incentive to be faithful and pursue godliness in spite of all the trials and the heavy drag of our sinful flesh. God's Spirit lives in us, knows everything about us, is at work to fulfill His purpose for us to be made like the Son of God. May these faint glimpses of His massive greatness encourage us on in our pursuit of godliness. And as Peter said, In a different context, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 2 Peter 3.11 Another thing that came to my mind is you can see how in the early days Christians could come up with various ideas on the nature of God. If things hadn't been spelled out for them and they were uneducated or untaught in the scriptures, it would be very easy for them to come up with different ideas. It's important for you and me to see the issues, consider the evidence, and give thanks to God for the efforts of those in the past who have worked to understand the scriptures and try to make sense of them and do the best they could to delineate for us what the nature of God is. We are the recipients of much effort of our forefathers in the faith. We've been greatly blessed. Akin to that, we must know what we believe and why we believe it. Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? We must stand firm, holding to the truth that God has given us. Just this uh, past Monday, I received a letter in the mail. Uh, This letter was not a personal letter. This was a letter written by Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. 
and written to his constituents. It was totally a unique letter. Never had received one just quite like it. I'm going to read just a, a couple excerpts from the first part of his letter. I have a, I've had a real burden about a particular matter for many years, and that burden continues to intensify as I observe the state of Christendom in this country and in the West in general. How many of the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, etc., were once Christian? My understanding is all of them. But today, they are leaders in indoctrinating generations in atheistic secular humanism. And sadly, there are many, actually the majority of once evangelical conservative Christian colleges, well on the way to becoming the Harvard, Yale, and Princeton of the future. And observe how many churches in various denominations have become lukewarm or liberal. Many Christian organizations have also followed this pattern. It seems to me, from all I've read and observed, that within two to three generations of their founding, the majority of Christian institutions move away from their intended beliefs, mission, and purpose. And then he goes on in the letter to describe what he wants to do to prevent that from happening at Answers in Genesis. Do you know what, am I, am I, do, do you know what Answers in Genesis is about? Okay, it's, in, it's uh, in northern Kentucky, right south of Cincinnati. There's a museum and the ark that they've built. Ken Ham sees the danger. And... Uh, He's wanting to take action to prevent that from happening to his organization. He realizes that he's on the way out, and a new generation is coming in. Um, remember what happened to Israel uh, after the days of Joshua. <laughs> exact same thing. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. I'm going to uh, use a, a little illustration to help us understand this. I brought a ball, and I, I don't have an inclined plane, so I'm going to have to ask you in your mind's eye to imagine that there's an inclined plane here, okay? This ball, if allowed to go its own way on that inclined plane, if I just let go of it, what would happen? It would just go right down, right? To keep that ball up here, a force has to be applied, pushing it up. This ball is like the institutions he's talking about. It's like the seminaries, the, the Christian colleges, the mission agencies, uh, Christian organizations of all variety, churches. This ball represents those. 
And if left to go its own way, where's it going to go? Away from truth. Always. Always. Because of the heavy drag of sin and just, you know, the, the opposition of the enemy, those organizations are going to go downhill, sure as the world. But at the heart of those organizations, who is it really that is going to go downhill? You know who, who this ball really represents? You and me. It's us. Because it's you and me who make up those organizations. Yeah. It's you and me who are board members on those organizations. And this ball really represents us as individuals. And so the, the church of Jesus Christ, the Christians, have to realize that they need to be in the Word of God, know what they believe and why, and continually be in the Word, walking in the Spirit, getting informed by the Word of God, standing on the Word of God, pushing that ball ever upward. Which direction of the ball of your life is you, are you going? Are you headed down, away from truth? Or are you constantly pushing the ball up? You know, in a, in a group like this, I don't know you people. Some of you I know. <laughs> Most of you I don't. Maybe you're on the board of some of these, uh, you know, TCU, Southern Baptist Seminary, whatever. The issue is with us. We are the sinners. And that's the reason there is such danger in these organizations going to pot is because we begin to waffle and the foundations begin to crack and down we go. And so we drop a little bit and then the next generation a little bit further until you have a Yale, Princeton, and Harvard. Totally gone. So Ken Ham... He, he's, he's trying to do what he can do. And uh, <clears throat> what he's doing is he's, he's getting a committee, getting, a, I think, several committees, if I remember, trying to put every, everything that they put out, their publications, the people that they use have got to subscribe to a doctrinal statement to keep that organization on track. Faithful to the word of God. But the weak link is the members of that commi those committees. <laughs> Can't get away from it. <laughs> those committees are made up of, of people who are sinners. So you know what we have to do? We have to pray. We have to pray. And I do know that the elders of this church are aware of these things. Because by personal experience. I know that they're concerned with what is taught here, that it be the truth. Uh, and that's a good thing, and we need that. Uh, we need to be ever vigilant, to be faithful, and seek the help of the Spirit of God to, to keep us going 
on the right path. Keep us faithful to the word of God. There's another thing. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12 says, um, well, let me just uh, explain. The prophets, it says in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, the prophets wondered what the spirit of Christ in them was meaning about the sufferings of the Messiah that was to come. So Peter says, the prophets of old wrote about the sufferings of the Messiah that was to come, and uh, they wondered what this was all about. And I'm going to read verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So here it is, the gospel's been preached by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is spreading the gospel in the world, and it says concerning that, things into which angels long to look, things into which angels long to look. (laughs) I just think that's a very interesting statement, that angels evidently are still learning. They don't know everything. And they long to look into this whole issue of the gospel. And um, I believe that, this, that, the, that the message of the cross, the cross of Christ, has got to be the deep things of God. This isn't fringe. The amount of stars, that's fringe stuff. <laughs> that's the outskirts of his ways. The cross would seem to me to be the depths of God. And angels long to look. Angels are curious and they're learning. And I'm uh, just uh, taking a little bit of a, I don't know, what do you call it? This is my imagination. I think angels have at least a 6,000 year head start on us in learning. Uh, we're, we, we are Johnny come lately's. We've only been here for a few years. They've been around a while, but they're still learning. And I think what that indicates is that we'll probably be learning all through eternity. I hope so. (laughs) I think, you know, with a God who is infinite, I think we're going to be learning forever. And, uh, you know, that's that's, that's a a bright prospect. Um, And finally... Uh, this is an example from my dad. My dad was uh, born on a homestead in Colorado. The homestead failed. The family moved back into Kansas, and dad was raised on a farm 50 miles northeast of Dodge City. Uh, it, after World War II, he was in the occupation army in Japan. Uh, he came back, went to Kansas State University, met my mom. They got married. He was going to be an engineer. And uh, uh, the Lord got a hold of him and uh, sent him to Columbia, South Carolina, to Columbia Bible College. So right after they got married, off they go to Columbia, South Carolina, and began Bible College. Uh, after, <clears throat> after some time, I was born, and then the Korean War broke out. Dad was called back into the Army. We moved to Fort Riley, Kansas, 
And then dad was shipped out to Korea. Uh, he was wounded in battle, uh, survived, uh, came back and uh, finished college uh, at Columbia Bible College. And then he took the family to uh, Holland by boat, uh, changed boats there, went through the Mediterranean Sea, Suez Canal, Indian Ocean, and ended up in Dutch New Guinea. And uh, there he worked with mom uh, uh, in a cannibal headhunting tribe for the rest of their time, till 1995. Um, my dad had many adventures. <laughs> I mean, he was a great storyteller, and he just, he just had all kinds of adventures. Um, but, you know, he said this at the end of his life, towards the end. He said, he says, you know, he, he realized that he'd had a lot of, quite a, quite a life of adventure. He said, the greatest adventure is yet to come. Yeah. Um, can you imagine going from mortality to immortality? From a physical realm to a spiritual realm. From a condition of being sinful to being righteous, totally righteous. And then to meet the triune God? Think of it. Um, it's if you stop and actually consider it, it's, it's heart-stopping. I think the Lord is going to have to give us special grace just to survive. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand how Isaiah and Daniel and John fell down as dead before the living God. Whew. That's going to be the adventure of a life. Man. Our greatest adventure will be when we leave this world shed this robe of corrupt, sinful flesh and stand in the presence of absolute holiness, power, wisdom, creator of all, savior of mankind. And we will stand only because of God's righteousness bestowed on us through Jesus our savior who bore our sin and judgment. And this salvation is made good to us through God's Holy Spirit who is at work mightily in our lives today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your abundant goodness to us. We thank you for sending the Spirit, Almighty Spirit, in the world to effect your purpose and will and to sanctify us, make us holy like our Savior. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.